Welcome back to Hope This Helps from a closet, literally a closet. I thought about it. At least for... I did it. So, yes, I'm trying from a new recording studio, and by rec- I take recording studio as a term very, very professionally, and this is actually not like a walk-in closet or anything, but we'll see how this goes. Took a lot of extra wires, but we're in here and we're Wait, we're doing is it, it like a small closet? I... I'm now trying to understand. This is not. So I had three closet options. There was the tiniest one, a less tiny one, and a full-size walk-in one. And I opted for that one just in the interest of not cramming everything together. And I think it's turned out swimmingly well so far. I just hope it doesn't get too warm in here. That's my only concern. Yeah, only you might concern. end up overheating in there. Yeah, well, we'll find out. It'll be the first ever Overheat Hope This Helps podcast, and we'll learn some things along the way if that happens. So you know what? We're just going to well, do it. Well, if it's the first one, it might be the last one if you don't make it out of the closet. Well, at least we made it to 18 episodes before that. Before That's that true. Point. This is probably the most consistent I've been with anything in my entire life. Yeah, so you know what? It's going to be just fine. Okay, so we have a whole bunch of stuff I think we're getting to yeah, today. Yeah, jam-packed. Um, we went from very little to talk about to suddenly everything to talk about. So I think without further ado, I think we should just jump right into stuff because holy moly. So, um, so Tiff, I don't know if you have, if your Outlook, if you're A, using Outlook Click to Run still, or if B, you got this update, but have you been using the new Outlook search with the Windows clipboard no. at all? So yeah. it's bad. It's not very, it's really buggy. So Windows clipboard, if you press Windows V, you will open up your clipboard history if you have it enabled. And in the Outlook search prior to the update from about a month and a half ago when they moved it and made it more universal, uh, compressing all the options into the single pane for the search, you could use Windows Clipboard with it. And when you select an option, it just dropped it right into the search box. But the current iteration of it doesn't even respond to that. When you pick an option in the clipboard, just the cursor just sits there and blinks. So you have to do an extra option, which the Windows clipboard falls back to, is if it won't automatically insert text, you have to press Control-V, which just makes it, it basically, instead of performing a paste option, it performs a copy option, which is really obnoxious. That does sound really obnoxious. It's, I, ho- I hope Microsoft knows about it. I wish Outlook was like open source or had like a bug tracker other than maybe user voice, but I think it's something If not, you could always create the user voice and then just share it out a bunch of times. Yeah, um, or I'll make yeah. five of them, and maybe each of them will have three upvotes apiece, so I'll have maybe 15 upvotes yeah. by the end of it all. if you by yourself did it. But you have yeah, friends. You could always so make think... them. That's what I do. I make I make yeah. people do things. You convince your friends just to do stuff, even right. if they don't understand it. Just like, no, do you see this? Don't just question click the it, button. just do don't, it. Don't think about it. Just do it. That sounds absolutely reasonable. Does it, though? So maybe, maybe I'll do <laughs> Force that. your you... friends. Yeah, I I think you inspired me to do it, so I think I might just make some user voices for Outlook search and Windows And just make your friends click, just just don't even think about it. Just do it. Yeah, so speaking of just doing it, so Microsoft 365 has this really uh, kind of strange feature where if you're not satisfied with the level of privileges or features you have in m365 you apparently can just purchase them as an end user so uh, as of may 21st microsoft has announced new self-service no new bleh, new self-service purchase user request workflow so it's 
kind of a, I don't know, it's, I don't, I don't really know how to describe this. It's basically if you're an end user who just doesn't like the man and you just want stuff, you could just, I don't know, if you got some cash laying around, you can just buy it and you'll just have it in 0365. And I'm kind of amazed that Microsoft is allowing this and it's kind of goes against literally everything in terms of permissions and governance and all kinds of stuff. And I also am unsure if this is on by default or not. And if it is on by default, that actually raises a whole lot more questions. So it is on by default. I had to go through my tenant and turn it off for all my users. But now that I'm understanding it is that I will have to go back and actually basically do nothing it looks like so the way that the new so back in january microsoft said hey we're going to allow users to purchase things and then they could or they could use trial licenses via the self-assigned portal however they gave you the ability to block that and turn it off by default in july they're saying hey we're going to have a workflow where a user can request to purchase something and then it admins can be like yeah sure you can buy this or you can have a license for this. At least I will say there is the workflow in place, which will be nice. But if you have help desk admin who has rights, they're going to be like, yeah, sure, you can have PowerPoint. I'm just making that up. But project, <laughs> things that may be allocated or licensed for different departments and so forth, that not everyone might be in tune with. So getting your government, government, wow, your governance up to speed is going to be huge. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, that's that that's a way better explanation than than the uh, than the sensationalized version I came up with. So it sounds like in the end, like it's one of those things where you might be spending more money than you need to for features you already have because an uninformed department or user might just go out and try to buy it separately. So I kind of hope that they would have some kind of system in place to say. You don't need to buy a service you already own in the tenant, or there, here's the differences between the one that you're looking at versus what we already have. If it's not there, then that's kind of a that's kind of a fiduciary. That problem, is correct. It it can be kind of problematic if you're not ready for this type of change. So that's that's out. Um, this one's from late May, so I assume it's out now. We're a little bit. Um, we're giving it some time to fester. So. As far as I know, it hasn't been rolled No, back. it's releasing in July. So it will be coming soon. Oh, right. Okay. So you have yeah, time. It's still June. Um, I don't know what month it is It's all the same anymore. now. It doesn't matter. Yeah, it's just day. Happy day. Happy day day. So, speaking of day day, and when I say speaking of, I mean totally not at all. So I have an update on my ever project-y project, project box, which is my Raspberry Pi NAS. So things I've learned over time about wattage distribution for both the NAS and the drives attached to it. Um, So previously I thought I had this solved where I had multiple power bricks, one to power the NAS in a dedicated fashion, the Pi in a dedicated fashion, and then have a separate one to power the USB hub that was powering the two drives that then fed into the Pi to lighten the load of the power distribution so the Pi wasn't doing everything. Well, turns out, while I did 
correctly calculate the necessary wattage for the power bricks that were installed, turns out there was a bit of a bottleneck with the USB hub itself, where it was a USB 3 and USB-C era hub, it took micro USB power and it seems that it is an inconsistent voltage going through it. And as a result, I was running into problems such as under heavy loads, my NAS would start reporting that a drive would drop or two drives would drop or the system was overloaded and it couldn't find the data anymore. And it was running into problems like my music skipping or just the shares going down for seconds on end, which in terms of consistency and usability, that's really obnoxious. So I decided to take it all down and figure out, okay, what is going on here? So what I ended up doing was I started taking one of the drives off of the hub, plugged it back directly into the Pi with just the direct SATA to USB adapter. So it was pulling power off of the Pi which in itself was going out the USB-C cable to a 30-watt anchor brick. Now, as I learned, I am not an electrician, so please forgive me, that wattage equals amps times volts. So, and you have to ensure that your total, you know, your brick capacity is not going to exceed that, that it is, you know, sending and receiving, you might say. And while I knew my drive was... A single a single SSD WD red only I think takes about fourteen ish watts or so. I'm just I don't have it in front of me, so I don't remember. And two of them it maxes out at twenty eight under heaviest loads. The Pi itself, um, the wattage will depend on the load of the system, so it's sort of varied. So what I ended up doing, which ended up in a much more consistent experience, was I took both of the SATA USB drives plugged them back directly into the Pi's USB 3 ports, and it's all running off of a single 30-watt anchor brick. In theory, this should be just fine unless the Raspberry Pi ever spikes to a 400% CPU load, which I hopefully don't think I've ever seen, and nor will I see, because for the what I'm using it for, I don't think it's ever going to necessarily spike it that much. And even running a Minecraft server with a fairly heavy large world on it i've never seen it spike to maybe about 250 percent utilization on the four cores so i'm hoping that works i think the hub was the problem and now that i've just removed it entirely and i'm just running the entire system off of a single 30 watt brick which should be adequate in like maybe 85 to 90 percent of the electrical scenarios that it's put through that should be fine the only problem is it kind of limits um yeah expandability because now I'm just plugged directly into the two USB 3 ports on the Pi, and I have no options for expandability, which is what I was hoping the hub would provide. If it was a powered USB hub without a power bottleneck, I could get two more ports out of it and allow for backup drives to be plugged in or whatnot, but I think I just might have to make a compromise on that. So that's uh, that's that's life for the Raspberry Pi. It's figuring out more, just fighting with electrical issues weirdly more than the actual usage, so... It's been a learning experience, and it's definitely something worth doing. It definitely sounds like a lot of fun. It also reminds me just how stupid I am. <laughs> Electrical, when it comes to like yeah. Electricity and volts and watts. <laughs> yeah, I'm like googling. I'm like, how many amps and volts gets me yeah, watts? Yeah, it's a lot of stuff to remember if you don't use it all the time. Yeah, I feel really dumb. I feel like I probably got some stuff wrong even just trying to. It's explain like it, trying but... to rewire your house, having never done it before. Yeah, and if you're not right, that too probably so. shouldn't do it. That describe 
describes me to the T. Anyways, I'm 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 done being embarrassed about this. Let's go switch to something I think we might know a little yeah, bit more about. Actual things we know about. Because we do know stuff. Yeah, so Yeah, and particularly we know a bit we about Exchange do. Online. So we do. So the Exchange Online V2 commandlets are out of beta and they're in <gasps> GA now. So they are officially released. Um I'm not quite sure yeah. what that means. But are they, there still only like nine commands? <laughs> there are only about nine new exchange online commandlets, just like before when it was in development at, at Ignite. And externally, the only thing I really noticed that they changed was the big warning message when you connect. They just kind of updated the verbiage a bit. But other than that, I'm not quite sure what So they're what still they nine. It's now public. Hoorah. Yeah, congratulations. It's... They can now kill basic auth because they're like, hey, we don't have a beta product replacing it, but even though we might have made very little changes to it, and there's still a lot of outstanding issues right. with it. Right, like the fact that you can only query nine things. Well, it includes all of the legacy commandlets, but you know, they were touting that this new module was going to be a lot more faster and efficient in addition to working with modern auth, which was kind of the sideshow to the whole thing. But the new commandlets are still only, you know, it's only nine commandlets. And take that for what it's worth. A lot of the times I'm not even using them. I'm still just using old stuff. The new commandlets are more oriented towards REST API calls and dealing with large right, swaths big of data. users. But if, you're, but if you're dealing with just small quantities of users, you're actually just using the legacy commandlets. So I don't, I, I wish they had more of a plan or an idea as to what they wanted to do with these new commandlets or at least give us more options that had more of a clear benefit for smaller scale operations. And when you use those though, and you're connecting and you're still using the legacy commandlets, don't you still need to connect via basic auth then? As far as I understand, everything is actually tunneling through modern auth now. And I did, so follow up from a couple of weeks ago when I did ask Microsoft about this because there was a problem in one of the previous iterations of the pre-GA module where if you connected, let it sit for a while and reconnected, it would reestablish your session, but a big warning would come up saying, you are, basic auth is being deprecated, please connect via the new EXO PowerShell module V2, which is what I was using. So I emailed them and I eventually got a response from them after a couple of months or maybe it's closer to a couple of weeks, sorry. And they did reply. They said this was a bug. They said that warning was not ever intended to come up, especially if you were reconnecting. And when they said that they fixed it, they said just if you do an update module command, you will get the latest, you'll pull down the latest one from the PS gallery and that warning will cease to come up when you reconnect, which I can confirm is now gone. So they did confirm it is all modern auth. Nothing is connecting through basic auth with this, new module that is good to know i definitely need to play around with a little bit more but i agree with you that the nine commandlets i'm just like but i want more it would yeah they they kind of talked it up like it was going to be a bigger thing than it actually is the 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 main story with this new module is the old method of connecting via ps sessions to 0365 is going away which means you're going to have to update a lot of scripts if your automation tasks are connecting via this method you're going to have to maybe figure out how to connect through the new method and make sure that's in and all set not only that there's mfa implications for this as well like if you don't have if you have mfa enabled globally and you don't have exceptions in azure iam for say 
I don't want MFA to fire off when I'm on premise, you might have a problem with automation because you might find that it might get stopped at the MFA oh. prompt. So does it actually now give you a window for MFA or okay. Yes, it does. If you are off premise, if you are off premise, yeah, it'll it'll just pop up a separate, you know, little so web. So you're prompted web, now uh, with the actual window. OAuth window where it's like, "Hey, log in." Correct. And if you have no MFA, you can just you can just slap in a um, okay, a cred, a cred file, file just like you always could with PowerShell. Oh, cool. However, no, that's great to know. But um, just you know, just bear in mind what that was that does. I going to say I had a thought and then I just totally right. Lost but just it. bear in mind that 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 will not work if you have MFA right, right. Enabled. If you have MFA, and also for those service accounts, you could always just turn MFA off, but not recommended. So yeah, have you updated your scripts yet to use version two? I have not updated any automated scripts. That's actually something I really got to look into. I've been soft testing this module for about four-ish months just with my own PowerShell profiles so far. I've been kind of taking baby steps. I'm like, let's swap out my own Exchange Connection profile with this. And let's then maybe maybe make one script run off it. Actually, now that I think of it, I might have one automated okay. test somewhere running off of the modern connection method, and I think it works. As far as I know, it just kept on going without any without any hitches. So the next the next uh, plausible step would be to update the rest of the automated tasks with this new module before Microsoft kills Basic Auth and breaks all these scripts. Luckily, you do have an additional year, so you have time now. Yeah, that is wonderful. At least, so it's a little less. We're a little less under the gun, but. I still think, you know, at this point, I guess it was maybe a wake-up call or a warning shot saying, yeah, you know what, figure it out anyway, right. just in case, because they are going to kill it eventually, and the more time you have to test and implement, the less disasters it's you'll have. It's absolutely going to happen. Some some of the um, comments on the PowerShell subreddit were still kind of amazed that that module was, was considered GA. There's a lot of... Uh, some folks were just coming up with some stuff that I had never even thought of. I think uh, one of the highlights of the comments I found on there was, I can't believe this is GA. It has so many issues, uses global variables <laughs> everywhere, and doesn't work on PowerShell <laughs> 7. That's embarrassing that it doesn't work on PowerShell 7. Yeah, he goes on to say, I tried to help this team, but their only input was an email address. A transparent approach via GitHub would have been so much Honestly, better. Honestly, that would be pretty cool if you could... up load like revisions and so forth and then they could approve them or add them that would really make a bigger community yeah. for this because exchange online if you've never used it i know you have steve it's kind of complicated if it can be very basic or it can be very complex right and it's yeah and the thing about it is i understand why microsoft may not have gone the more open source github approach to this module because the thing about this module is it does hook into certain things like the .NET libraries and proprietary exchange things that as of 2020, Microsoft is still keeping close source. So maybe there is a methodology to why they only accepted feedback through an email address that they barely monitored. That being said, it could have been handled in so much better fashion than the way they have because like you know, like this person said, there's been, there's issues I wasn't even aware of. I'll have to check out the global variables thing and maybe do a query on my system to see just what it sets because that's, that isn't great because if your global variables get changed by something else or you use something of the same name, that can mess up your module that has, you know, security implications if someone can mess with that and all sorts of things. I'm probably. Agreed. I'm of. very intrigued now and I want to go back and read all of the comments 
because I do really enjoy the comments on these blog posts because people do have really good ideas. Funny, there's one. Apparently, System Center Orchestrator 2019 only supports PowerShell 4, Ooh. not even 5.1. Just si- side note. That's a that's a that's a product I'm less familiar with. Yeah. I, just, I just caught that comment there that wasn't there before. Wow. That's really funny. Yeah, so okay, so the module is out. It has some issues, some growing pains, and maybe some transparency problems that maybe it should have worked out in beta, but it's out. Probably get to testing it and hopefully it all works out for you. Yeah. Do it. I need to yeah. definitely play around more with so, it on my list of things to mm-hmm. do yeah, all right sure. so exchange i know that's everyone's top favorite topic what else do we what else exchange. do we have oh so universe universal print yeah plans. so the first thing that came to my mind was paper cut yeah what's so what's going on with this universal print so what it kind of looks like is it's a, a cloud-based print service it's a hybrid cloud-based print service and i don't know if maybe i'm thinking about huh. it too much where i'm like I, I, I'm thinking that it's just like a global print service where you're just like, hey, this is the printer and it just all ties into Microsoft 365 rather than having to go buy another service like Papercut or whatever other ones exist out yeah. there. And, or instead of having to have all of these printers connecting via SMTP, it probably just picks them up automatically and creates the connection i was gonna say i was i was just picking out of the article universal print just requires having azure active directory domain joined pcs running windows 10 version 1903 or later no drivers required just join to azure and stuff will show up as universal print yeah that takes oh that takes away like the need for having the print server entirely no print servers servers and drivers are just you know they're just yeeted up to azure and that's brilliant there any, that's interesting. That's sort of like Google's Yeah, cloud print, but anyone who's ever managed a print server before, it's a pain. It's like the most annoying oh, it is. thing to have to manage. So whether it's like your local print service like, or you're like buying an external one, you still have to manage it. This you don't even have to manage. You do. Is, well, you, you manage right, it Right, but you manage it via but Azure. It's from, a single, it's from a single source. Yeah. yeah, it's a single source of truth. So that's interesting. That's... So that's nice. That is a um, logical, I guess. Um, I think maybe it's probably playing catch up to Google's cloud print service or Apple's yeah, AirPrint. Likely. I think. Except it's tied into Azure, so it's going to kind of use the adva- the existing IAM features of your domain joint right. systems and user delegation. And more towards and the enterprise so. environment. I think that's right now the biggest area of opportunity because you do AirPrint and Google Print. I'm sure Google has something for G Suite, but again, I think that my personal opinion is that the G Suite is kind of like a tacky. It's tacky. Yeah, I don't know it's, enough about G it's Suite. Okay. But yeah, it's okay. I mean, kinda... it has its purpose, and I would say if you're a medium-sized company, it's great. But for a true enterprise environment, you really need the bells and whistles. Yeah, I've heard good things about G Suite yeah. for education. How it's done great things for Google Classroom and maybe some medium to small scale student teacher email not- operations but when you're getting super large i i'm not entirely sure right. if it if it's my stacks problem up. is that it still looks like it belonged in 2001 yeah like really? the google me and so forth the applications the green the flatness of it now i'm just ranting uh, about the just- the interface <laughs> how it looks not so much the functionality the functionality is great 
say it could have the greatest functionality but you just can't no. get past the interface well that's why apple spends so much time on the looks of things because it does matter apple spends a lot of time on the looks of things and not how they actually function see also their Ugh. keyboards Ugh, the chiclets yeah. no which to be to be to be fair they've officially completely jettisoned it only took them like line, 10 years to get out of that well, eh. Eh. but it's yeah whatever i have a surface i do, now. I do really <laughs> like my surface yeah, that's actually what I'm recording this podcast on today. Instead of instead of my desktop, it's it's being Yay. a champ right Keep now. Keep on checking so. along. So, um, that was print. Uh, I don't know any other. No, print is very. Print hasn't changed in a minute, in a million years. So print is just print. So everyone knows that the world is in some disarray or a lot of disarray, but tech companies are being pressured once again about their data, and many. Many are oh, yes. saying they are not going to now sell its facial recognition technology to police. So Amazon and IBM have also done that as well because there are protests all over the world and trying to keep a bipartisan opinion. Yes. I think this is a good thing. Yes, this is following suit by, of course, Amazon and IBM. IBM entirely exited the development of the facial Oh, they did entirely. And Amazon entirely. Yeah, IBM took the most, wow. the most grandiose move so far. And Amazon, I believe, took a bit of a half measure. They said they are going to ban law enforcement from using facial recognition for the next year. That is subject to change, but that was what wow. that was the announcement they made. I don't see Microsoft giving up on it because they have made so much improvement with uh, Windows Hello. I don't know if right. they're just going to abandon something that they've invested so much in. But this is one of those things where if you don't follow suit, you could make a huge mistake with your business. Yeah, this is the kind of thing, I see this a lot in the industry, um, when one company might do something this large, everyone kind of follows suit, whether or not they're competitors. So this is kind of something that I just saw, you probably saw Microsoft doing just as a, you know, solidarity or just this one company continuing on with it doesn't make any sense in the grander scheme of things. And what does that mean for things like HoloLens and other products that do rely on facial recognition so so microsoft specifically isn't selling the facial recognition okay. technology to police but how that do was you, the official announcement how so do you they, essentially they, police that or stop that yeah that that's probably a more complicated question because you can not you can refuse to sell it but as to how it is acquired that's probably a bigger bigger questions with bigger answers i probably don't have so but it does yeah but like i said they're not they're not they're not going to right. stop development of it. So consumer level products, they're probably just going to keep on. HoloLens will be fine. Windows Hello will be fine. Whatever else uses that is probably going to just continue on as it was. It's more just like uh, probably a B two a B two. I guess it's a B two G business to government uh, policy change. I guess I don't I know think if I just made did, up the term. But B two B is a thing. Business to business. So B two G, B two government. Business. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I I feel it. It works. Yeah. You have, you have B2B, B2C, and B2G. I guess B2G now, B2G. officially. B2G. B2G. Yeah. So. so, I mean, is it a good thing? But it doesn't Wonderful. stop someone individually from purchasing it and utilizing it for for that. So, I mean, there's a lot of loopholes, and I'm probably overthinking it. But 
I mean, it's a it's a step yes, in the right direction overall of the demilitarization yeah. of police. Yes, it's 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 in a sensitive time right now, and it's the, I I feel it's it's just the right it's the right move. It's the right move at the mm-hmm. right time, I think, for for Microsoft to be doing this and. IBM that was impressive just IBM just to just turn around to say nope just dropping it that was that was that was bold that was that was wonderful Amazon uh probably the least impressive of the three but at least it is it is something so what does IBM even do anymore IBM is more focused on a lot of cloud offerings these days and AI so IBM Watson was sort of the very first iteration of that and they have a lot of supercomputer things as far as I understand, I think they did have the most they did have the most powerful one, but I think they kind of go back and forth between Azure and folding at home of all things because of the multi clusters around the world of you know just individual computers and people's houses running folding at home. So it kind of shifts around, but they're more in the business of kind of what they were doing forty years ago with maybe centralized mainframes, except we call it cloud and AI now. Right. No, that's that makes sense. Good times. Good times. Yeah, I just I just get very Excellent fuzzy times. on what IBM is doing these days. Uh, but I think you're right in that they just have gone back to providing service, a lot of services. Mm-hmm. So yeah. they're just staying in there. Don't know how. All right, so that concludes this week's boot up. Unless you have anything else. Yeah, no, we'll just that that will conclude the boot up, and we'll just we'll just go right ahead to uh, the next thing, which um, I think I had it as a boot up topic, but I decided to just break no, because I its like own. I like where you're going so, with um, it. Yeah, so we'll um we'll we'll pivot a little bit to Nintendo of all things, and this and don't worry, this is this is topical to our podcast, so. Nintendo had has had some issues. Um, it's actually been spanning a fairly long amount of time, but it's been kind of getting progressively worse and worse as time goes on, where folks with Nintendo network IDs have been getting breached, and it's been happening in large quantities, especially lately, and Nintendo has been a little bit slow to disclose that these breaches have been happening. I know on the alert front, they kind of just release these as press releases or KB articles and batches saying this amount of accounts were breached and they've been resolving them on a case-by-case basis. Apparently, the one of the most common things is these accounts are breached and the attacker will probably purchase like $900 worth of Fortnite V-Bucks or something, transfer the money, but they utilize the card info on file for these IDs and they just move on to the next victim. Nintendo has been fairly diligent in refunding these folks, but the issue is it keeps happening. And this comes down to why is this happening? What I believe is happening is in the... So I tend to notice this in the gaming world. There is a lot of technology in the gaming world that kind of crosses between enterprise tech, but a lot of folks are less informed in that space. So with Nintendo Network IDs in particular, Nintendo does actually support full multi-factor authentication using an Authenticator app or Authy or what have you, but most folks don't have this enabled. And if they continue to not have it enabled, they think just changing their password until the end of time is enough. This is just going to keep happening. So this is sort of a PSA to those, If even if you are in tech and you have 
some like a PSN ID, Nintendo Network ID, or whatever, and you don't have MFA enabled, you need to enable that because they are high-profile targets because of the large quantities of users and proprietary systems that tend to be less informed. So this is purely, I don't want to say social engineering, but it's more easily achievable to brute force these accounts because they will just not learn or they just don't have the technical um, resolve to you know, take care of this and secure their account properly. So this is something that I think not only the users have to get better at, but Nintendo also has to get better at educating and onboarding for MFA and maybe just forcing it. Because if this continues to happen and all Nintendo does is just post KB articles saying another 300K have been uh, breached, this that's not good enough. Something has to be done. And particularly on the InfoSec front, it just it just has to do with how you want to govern your account security and all that kind of stuff and i think i'm starting to talk in circles so i'm just going to shut up now but this is kind of the situation with nintendo and it's been going on for a while i think at least since the 3ds era before the switch even came out this has been a problem so it needs to be addressed and i know personally i'm running mfa through authy it works just like any other mfa account i have and um yeah that's thank you Thank you for attending my TED Talk. <laughs> this is Steve's TED Talk on Mario. It's a me, um, MFario. I... <laughs> MFAario. Oh, MFAario. So, uh, yeah, Nintendo, okay. make sure you have MFA on. Don't mess around with that. It's super important. Keep your money safe. Yes, and please educate the users on this and f- force it when they make accounts because this is this is silly. This is stupid. This is a problem no, that doesn't have to exist. No, because you have to look at your user base for Nintendo, it is not your tech savvy. Maybe in some cases, yes. Maybe I'm stereotyping a lot. But I think just people in general have a hard time with security. Anecdotally, I've noticed on particularly particular gaming subreddits, like high profile ones, r slash um, games, a lot of folks literally just do not, they just they don't, don't understand. They always post in the comments like, my password is really secure. I change it all the time. Why do I get breached all the time? It's like, because that, because password security alone is not going to stop. No, an they're like going this. after you intentionally because they know the community. Br- the attackers know the gaming Br- community. Force- they know what kinds of passwords people use. Not only that, they know the passwords may not be secure. They might be easy to input on a device like the Switch where the keyboard is a piece of garbage, you know, on the touchscreen or whatever. So it might be simpler to begin with. But the other thing is brute force attempts have just gotten better over the years. The stronger the, you know, silicon on the on the motherboard and chips are, it's just going to be easier to crack a password no matter how long or complex it gets over time. So MFA is really a necessity in this day and age because of that exactly yes so anyways yeah that's 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 really all i got on it. it's just the reasoning for why it's happening there's both two two parties that really need to update a few things in terms of knowledge and training and just better security practices mm. so nintendo MFA. nintendo mfa do it live it love it so um i have an update for yay the state of the i Zunion. love these this is Yes, welcome to the State of the Zune for June 12, 2020. So I have a follow-up on the Zune Video Conversion 2020 project that I commissioned on my own. I have I am back to report to say that I am successfully able to convert video files outside of the Zune software for use with the Zune devices. I finally figured it out. 
So there, it's a it's a little loophole. So a little background on this. Back in the day, up until the up until Windows 10, I think the anniversary update, 1511, possibly maybe 1607, 1703, one of those, one of those. Microsoft had the ability in the Zune software to convert video files to the Zune format natively, and all you had to do is right click and sync it to the Zune. However, this relied on a proprietary codec, that of which I think it was one of the Windows Media. One of the Windows Media ones, I forget exactly which one. I, I read it at one point, but I just forgot. But it's been removed ever since, probably for the interest of getting less proprietary things out of Windows and just modernizing. So as a result, the Zune software no longer converts these videos to the Zune-compatible format, which is a very strict set of codecs and settings in order for it to sync without an error. So there are ways outside of the Zune software to convert this, a lot of legacy software from back in the day did have Zune, Zune video settings. The problem is you need separate settings for both the Zune standard def, the 30, the 80, the 120, versus the Zune HD, and possibly the Zune, the 4s and the 8s, the little tiny like candy bar sized ones. So my methodology for this was I just tried various converters. I was having a lot of frustration. I tried Handbrake. Handbrake apparently just doesn't have a lot of the codecs or they just jettison the proprietary bits from it a long time ago they could convert with zune but they've since removed it so i found an oddball converter it's kind of weird it's a little sketchy called any soft video converter it has presets for converting the correct video format for the zune and once i did that i've been jettisoning that into another converter which is open source-ish. I can't remember if it is fully open source, but it's existed since at least 2008. The program is called MediaCoder. And this has a lot of options for converting videos. The interface is a little bit complicated, but it can kind of help you out if you take a video that was already converted for the Zune and you drop it in and you can view its settings. You can sort of mirror it in the output settings. And that's precisely what I did for the Zune Standard Def and the Zune HD. And now I have presets, at least in MediaCoder, for converting videos to Zune-compatible formats, which is really nice. So now I can take my Zune 80, which has a broken screen, but it's hooked to an AV dock, hooked to a CRT from the 90s, and I can watch movies like Idiocracy or whatever, or watch standard def content on a true 4x3 display with true color reproduction because it's not an LCD. <laughs> because it's not an LCD. That's so sad. Not yes. an LCD. Yeah. Not an LCD. Just the big old tube. So that is that is the state of the, that is the conclusion of the state of the Zune. That's it? There won't be any more? Okay, good. Oh, there'll be more. You scared just, me. Sometimes they might be. Just, just, bite -si just okay. bite-sized updates. The state of the Zune for today has concluded. Yay. So what is this um, about JSON and waterfalls? Yes, so don't go JSON really, waterfalls. I really that was very clever. So, I did. Do. You, did you like that? Because I I couldn't I couldn't tell if I wanted to create it my own it's joke. It's really good. It, so, <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> what 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 is this? So, Windows Terminal is the new hotness from Microsoft. It just came out of beta. It's in 1.0. It's in the Windows Store. It's for all of your terminal needs, tabbed formats, lots of. Uh, expandability, language accessibility, um, 
Azure, Cloud Shell, Unix, Linux, whatever you can shove into it. Pretty much a putty killer in my eyes. So this program has been really good for the most part. However, it has a bit of a flaw. You cannot run Windows Terminal as another user. And in the enterprise, this is a bit of an issue. Because a lot of times, a lot of folks might be running, say, they might have a privileged account that has all the permissions necessary to um, run their daily their daily tasks or automation. Windows Terminal only runs in the context of the current user logged in, and you cannot change that because you do not get run as another user through this executable because it is a Windows Store app. So that has been a major failing of the application, and there's been a big GitHub issue about it. However, I found a workaround for this actually by screwing around with the JSON template files. So the way Windows Terminal holds its settings is a big JSON template file, much like how Microsoft's doing this with Azure or whatever. JSON is just sort of a standard template settings file for a lot of things, and Windows Terminal is no different than that. What you do to get Windows Terminal to spawn subterminals as another user is you can add certain lines, which you can name it, your shell, whatever. Let's say I want to call PowerShell 7 under my privileged account. You need to change the command line setting inside the bracket to run to runas.exe. You use the save cred switch, your user with your domain slash username, and then you run your path to your executable, in this case, pwsh.exe. And this is, a, this is adequate to at least get Windows Terminal to spawn a new window running as the user you desire. This is a bit of a workaround, however, because it will not open as a tab in Windows Terminal. Instead, it will open as a whole separate process of PowerShell in a whole separate window. But that being said, you can still just launch Windows Terminal and have it be your one-stop shop because then you don't have to have another shortcut set, set somewhere else. You don't have to open the run box or anything. So we are kind of getting there. And there is a GitHub issue that is requesting this to be a native feature. But at least there is a workaround that I found and it is at least it, it's helpful it's not ideal but it is helpful and it does do maybe 60 percent of the requested functionality makes sense and that's really all i have on it it was just a quick little thing i just thought it was a milestone because it, i've been trying to figure this out for a while so i figured it might help somebody this is called the hope this helps podcast so hope somebody. It helps. somebody somebody will get help someday it might not be yep. any time soon it's hope this helps, not guarantee this helps. Speaking of things that help, we have a sponsor this week. We do. Is this your sponsor we, thing that you were? We do. This is the unplanned outage, a.k.a. we interrupt this podcast for an ad. So hope this helps this week is helped by Next Generation IoT. We'd like to announce that Google Home now has poop mode. If you just say, okay, Google, I have to poop, it will enter a special mode that will give you special features while you're on the can. And... As to what those features are, uh, I don't know. Ask Google and find out. Apple's also come to the come to the table with its new outdoor expansion called GnomePod, and even Amazon's getting in on the action with Amazon Home Fire. Engulf your home dwelling with IoT from Amazon Home Fire. Home Fire, that's brilliant. You you weren't kidding when you yes. said that you were very proud of these. Thanks to Google, Apple, and Amazon for sponsoring our show, Yay. which they're, they 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 totally they totally totally are. So thanks to 
Thanks to all y'all. You're all and Microsoft for giving us something to talk about all of the time. Yes, I would. I would have included Cortana, but Cortana just got removed from Windows 10, basically. So unfortunately, I can't include Cortana in the next generation IoT bundle that is sponsoring. Hope this helps. All of the Halo people are going to be so sad. It will be very, very, very sad. I don't actually think anybody's really that sad about it. No, not especially. No. So my next topic that I want to talk about is socks auditing. If any of you work for publicly traded companies, you have to go through this painstaking process, which is terrible. So basically, if you have any public, if you're publicly trading, you have to have internal controls and you have to be able to report them out and you have to pay somebody to come in and tell you that you're doing it all correctly. They will not tell you that ever. There's a chance you're doing it all wrong and will always do it all wrong. However, you pay them lots of money to tell you that you're doing it wrong or right. And because you have to disclose your financial request, this is to prevent sketchy stuff from going on. Because it does happen. Um, Basically, what happens is you have auditors come in and they will sift through everything, have you take screenshots of every server. And it's just looking at the financial stuff, making sure that it's all protected. And if they have any questions, you have to go back and look at it. The goal is to make it as streamlined as possible but it ends up being a lot of work. Um, But when I say SOX, it stands for the Sarbanes-Oxley audit. Um, Really, there's nothing else you want to know, I promise. There's not a whole lot to talk about other than it's just looking at IT security, access controls, data backup, and change management. Huh, that's interesting. For all your financial data. Wow, that's uh, that's, uh, for sure something i think i've heard that name actually as recently as today actually oh, wow. what was that what was that name again something uh oxley? sarbanes oxley i keep thinking sarbanes oxley yeah, yeah, oxley oxycontin oxycontin yeah, i think it's oxley i don't know i can never say things correctly yeah so okay so that's interesting yeah i it's funny you bring this up. I swear I just heard this name literally today somewhere. So it's funny how stuff like that comes mm-hmm. up in clumps. So has this always been a thing? Is this yearly? Is this yearly? This is, this is always, yearly. This you have new? to do it every single year. Um, if you're publicly traded, you have to. Huh. Um, I don't know how new it is, though. I think it's been enacted for a while. The Sarbanes-Oxley Act of 2002 also known as the Public Company Accounting Reform and Investor Protection Act. Uh, so this has been around yeah, for a little while. Yeah, Responsibility and Transparency Act. Um, so it's also known as Sarbanes-Oxley or SOX. And it is a United States federal law that set or expanded requirements for all U.S. public company boards, management, and public accounting firms so basically a bill that contains 11 sections so what is the goal it's to make yeah you it's to make you pull out, your hair out and it used to be just for the finance department but now that everything is becoming cloud it becomes an it 
problem. Interesting. Because you have to show, so. so if you have, for example, take SQL, if you have a SQL server that's hosting all your financial financial data or is providing the tables for a program, you have to be able to provide those tables and query on them, but also you have to be able to show the accounts and who has access to that server. And for example, if someone pops up who no longer works there or who may be a help desk member, they're going to question you as to why a help desk person has access to a financial data server. Yes, that would, that would and that makes perfect sense. So, right. Okay, so it's kind of maybe in a little bit, a little bit of RBAC, a little bit of just making sure that, you know, the person, the people that need to access what they need to access are indeed capable of accessing it and exactly. no one Exactly. So it's, it's there to make sure that controls are set in place and also to help solidify proper documentation. However, I will say that is not really the case. It just becomes a major PIA. Yeah, this just sounds like it's just more overhead. I mean, I understand why it exists, but man, this well, right, because you, if you have companies that have problems with insider trading or anything like that, because if you have access to that data and you're Joe Schmo over in uh, marketing has access to finance tables, you're going to be like, but why? They don't yeah. belong. Why do they even have access to the server? There's no need mm. for it. Yeah, that's. Azure has a lot of nice tools mm-hmm. for things like this too. If you if you are privileged enough or you are lucky enough to have all your stuff in Azure, Azure has a lot of auditing tools built in. So for the IAM portion, so that's. I think the more you're in the cloud with this in particular, the easier time you might have unless you have an on-premise audit thing like AD Audit or whatever. Right. I think it'll get easier. Yeah. So, okay. Well, that's good. Good. Something I didn't know. So things, things you learn, things you learn every day. All right. So I think we're coming around to probably what I think is going to be our final topic for today, which is something I've been fighting and having issues with. Uh, for a while, but I have a, I think I believe I have a consistent fix for it now. And it is the dilemma of, say you have a single AD or distribution group and you have someone who's been managing this group, but you need somebody else to also manage this group. What do you do? You'd think that you could just go into the AD groups member uh, managed by properties and can clear out the manager field and replace it with a group but Microsoft doesn't allow you to do that. So you have to actually learn a bit of ACLs and observe and do a little observation of what a single manager can do to a group and then mirror those exact permissions onto a group in the ACLs. So what am I talking about here? So if you go to, say you have a group, it has a manager and member can sorry, manager can update membership list is checked off in AD. You have that manager set to be able to add and remove members of this distribution group or group or whatever. So what you need to do is you go into the security tab and you go to the advanced button. You go and find this user, which will be in the ACL. You open the properties of that person in the advanced tab, uh, advanced window, whatever it is. And you need to check and observe what the object permissions are, which object the permissions are applying to, the inheritance, and what exact permissions are granted. And in this case, it's actually not incredibly complicated. I can actually just tell it to you from memory. It is allow this object only to write member with no no direct descendants or anything. So what you could do with that is you can create a separate AD group. You can call it 
I don't know, my staff DL managers group. And you say this group, members of this group are given the permissions to modify this other DL here. They can say add or remove members or whatever using the DS query AD, ADUC console that is built into Windows 10 without any additional tools. So if you create this group, delegate it the right member permissions and add it to the ACL of the DL and then add members to that manager's management group, they will be able to manage as a plurality of people this DL. And this seems to work. I've tested it multiple with multiple folks and it's a pretty good solution. It does seem to be a little bit finicky if you are on an unstable connection like a VPN and your internet is a little bit wobbly. I've noticed that it can be a little buggy, I think, where the add or remove buttons in AD tend to get grayed out when they shouldn't be. But your mileage may vary a little bit there, but I just like to say this is a nice little nice little solution for a problem that sometimes comes up a little bit more often than it should. I agree with you there. Yay, configuring multiple. So we are coming Yay. up on the hour mark. I do have to get going. Yes, me as well. I think we are yeah. at time. And, and look at that. We, we, we timed this out almost perfectly. We did. So this week I am short on a question, but I'm sure we'll come up with one and we'll add it to our Twitter. So. Yep. I think I think we might just have to cut the question this week, or if we do, just follow, follow us. <laughs> follow our Twitter. Hope this helps for for more extension, extensive content, as well as extended uh, work, work notes, notes, show and notes, bad dad jokes. You know, bad dad jokes, extended blog posts, video content, anything you can think of. We are on hthpc.com. We of course have Twitter, Twitch, everything else. We have a subreddit. Um, the hub is our website, and our Twitter is our second most active product pl- product platform. But yes, so we are on hthpc.com. Also, rate us on iTunes if you can. It's kind of nice, but I digress. Yep, hthpc.com. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, everyone. We hope this helps.